you can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Happy Friday. We have lots to get to this evening, but I want to start tonight with a book. It is published by Winning Winning Team Publishing. That's the name of the publishing house, Winning Team Publishing. And you can pre-order it now. It is $99, which is an expensive book. But it includes this letter dated December 21st, 1987. It reads, Dear Donald, I did not see the program, but Mrs. Nixon told me that you were really great on the Donahue show. As you can imagine, she is an expert on politics, and she predicts that whenever you decide to run for office, you will be a winner. With warm regards, Richard Nixon. That letter is from a new book from Donald Trump coming out next month, and it is titled Letters to Trump. It includes correspondence with celebrities and dignitaries and former presidents, including apparently Richard Nixon. Today, Trump called Nixon a very interesting guy and informed reporters that Nixon's biggest regret was resigning amidst the Watergate scandal. The twice impeached Trump went on to say that unlike Nixon, Nixon, he does have public support. And if, if it were him, Trump would not have resigned as Nixon did. Now, it is quite fitting for Mr. Trump to be focused on President Nixon today and boasting that he wouldn't have resigned during Watergate because Trump now finds himself under federal investigation or rather federal investigations, plural. Special counsel Jack Smith is overseeing two sprawling criminal inquiries into the former president regarding events surrounding January 6th and classified documents that Trump kept hidden at Mar-a-Lago. Yesterday, a brigade of Trump lawyers were in federal court in Washington, D.C., as Justice Department prosecutors were trying to compel Trump lawyer Evan Corcoran to provide additional testimony before a grand jury in the Mar-a-Lago documents case. In particular, they want to talk to Corcoran about why he drafted a statement to investigators saying there were no more classified documents at the president's speech club when that turned out to not be the case at all. And then there is the massive January 6th investigation and Trump's efforts to subvert the 2020 election. The special counsel is currently in a court fight to force Vice President Mike Pence to testify. CNN reported this week that Pence has asked a judge to block that request. And then down at the state level, Donald Trump is facing even more scrutiny. In Georgia, Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis' investigation into Trump's effort to overthrow the state's election results, that is ratcheting up. The foreperson of the special grand jury last month confirmed that the panel had recommended about a dozen criminal indictments and implied that the list included Donald Trump. Here in Manhattan, prosecutors under District Attorney Alvin Bragg are full steam ahead in their investigation into the former president's alleged hush money payments to porn star Stormy Daniels during the 2016 campaign. The New York Times reported last night that prosecutors are signaling to Trump's lawyers that an indictment is coming and they have offered the former president the chance to testify before that grand jury. That seems to have struck a nerve with the former president. He published a lengthy statement last night saying he did absolutely nothing wrong, denying he ever had an affair with Stormy Daniels and calling the probe, amongst many other things, a, quote, political witch hunt. And then today, Trump posted a video. Our country has become the investigation capital of the world. Actually, that's all we do. And it's only good for our many enemies, our enemies that are laughing at us all over the world. 
They could not be happier as they brilliantly plot our demise and destruction. While Trump decried the Manhattan District Attorney's investigation, his former lawyers and fixer, Michael Cohen, met today for the 20th time with prosecutors about those hush money payments. 20 times. I have to applaud um, District Attorney Bragg for giving Donald the opportunity to come in and to tell his story. Now, knowing Donald as well as I do, understand that he doesn't tell the truth. It's one thing to turn around and to lie on your untruth social. It's another thing to turn around and lie before a grand jury. So I don't suspect that he's going to be coming. NBC News reports tonight that Michael Cohen is now set to testify before the Manhattan grand jury on Monday afternoon. The New York Times reports Mr. Cohen's testimony before the grand jury is the second strong indication that the district attorney will ask it to indict the former president, possibly as soon as this month. Joining us now are Michael Schmidt, New York Times reporter and author of Donald Trump versus the United States, and Rebecca Royfe, law professor at New York Law School and a former assistant DA in the Manhattan DA's office. Thank you both for being here. Um, Rebecca, I want to start with you as uh, someone who is familiar with what the president calls the, investiga- the, the investigation capital of the world. Um, never mind that he was talking about a country and not a city. I digress. Um <laughs> This investigation, um, Alvin Bragg, our DA, Manhattan DA's uh, investigation into the hush money payments, for a long time, there was the impression that it had gone dormant. All of a sudden, we're hearing that a criminal indictment may be forthcoming in a matter of weeks. Did it ever go dormant or things happening beneath the surface that we were not aware of? I mean, do you have a sort of an assessment about how this all unfolded so quickly in recent weeks? So it's hard to know for sure. Yeah. But my guess is it never went dormant. I, you know, I don't think any of these investigations went dormant. I think they were all proceeding in a parallel way. And the prosecutors are assessing them as they go along and deciding um, in a tactical, strategic way. And also in terms of their own discretion, which cases to bring, if any, and, and what order to bring them. In. Do you have a sense... I mean, again, this is all we're, we're playing a guessing game here. But given your experience and understanding the way these sometimes work, was it is it your sense that something there was a turn of the screw that and we know they've been hauling in all kinds of Trump uh, loyalists in recent days from Kellyanne Conway to Hope Hicks. Michael Cohen's gone in there 20 times that they got some piece of evidence that that sort of then juiced this and put it on steroids? Or, I mean, do you have any sense of what would be necessary after such a long period of investigating this very topic? Right. And it's not, I mean, there are some complications in this case. You know, for one, the star witness is a bit problematic. And Michael Cohen. And the second one is it's legally not the simplest case. But that said, the facts are not Holy, so intricate. So you're right. The fact that they've been investigating it for so long and then, you know, at this point, suddenly, you know, it's, it seems, yeah. you know, to be coming to a, a quick end. So I, you know, I don't really know. It could be that they have some testimony or something that more clearly ties him to this case than they had before. I mean, that's entirely possible. Or they just decided that these pieces fit together, that the puzzle pieces fit together in a way that before they hadn't really assessed. Um, Michael, rewind, go back, if you could, to the year 2016, actually 2018, when all of this was unfolding in the national media. And I wonder when you read the names Kellyanne Conway and to some degree Hope Hicks will set Michael Cohen aside for the moment. When you read that they were going into the DA's office to, t- to talk to prosecutors, what, is, what was your thought in terms of the information they might be able to provide vis-a-vis the Stormy Daniels hush money payments? 
Well, these were people who were around in the final weeks of the 2016 campaign when when this all sort of comes together. So they could speak to what Trump was saying behind closed doors, what his relationship with Cohen was like, what was Cohen doing, how much coordination may have been going on, and even what happens after Trump goes into the White House. Because if you remember, some of the checks, at least one of them, if I recall correctly, was signed by Trump in the Oval Office when it was given when it was given to Cohen as part of the scheme as it was playing out. So these were people who were very close to Trump, especially Hope Hicks. This is someone who was traveling around with Trump as he was campaigning, Kellyanne Conway running the campaign at the time. So so people that were, were part of that inner circle and behind closed doors, but also people that are not family members and, and don't come with you know the optics of, of bringing in a family member, which sometimes prosecutors do not want to do. These are people that can get you in the room without having to put Jared and Ivanka there. So, so you know, and it showed me the seriousness of this, regardless of, of, of as much as you want to get to the bottom of the facts as a prosecutor, to take the move of bringing in these two individuals um, certainly shows that you are really, really moving to try and do something. These are not names that had come up much in terms of the Stormy Daniels payments earlier. So so you're not going to throw them in there before investigators or a grand jury for gratuitous reasons. So there is something there that, that, that they are looking for as this investigation sort of intensifies and looks like it's building towards something. I'm, I'm really quite um, obsessed with the timing on all of this, Michael. And we know that Alan Weisselberg, the chief financial officer for the Trump organization, was one of the masterminds, according to Michael Cohen, about the sort of payment schedule for these hush money payments or how it, the, the initial payment would be reimbursed by Trump to Cohen. Given the fact that Alan Weisselberg is now serving a sentence at Rikers and there was a lot of legal activity around Alan Weisselberg, do you think that had anything to do with the timing on all of this? Do you think there could be any overlap between what happened with Weisselberg and the new sort of um, the, the, the way in which the DA's office is moving with apparent alacrity in all of this? I'm not sure. I mean, what we know about Weisselberg is they would really like for him to cooperate. And he currently sits in prison and the prosecutors would really like for that to happen. We have not seen any indication that there has been cracking in that and that Weisselberg, you know, has has come to the table to help the prosecutors. Now, when you're sitting in prison, prosecutors really, you know, hope that at that point you can turn someone into a cooperator, that the the fact that Weisselberg will be sitting there and realize that he could probably get himself out of prison by turning on Trump, um, you know, is, is a bet that the prosecutors can make because it means nothing to them for Weisselberg to continue to sit there. Now, is that the reason why all of this has built to where it is now? Probably, probably not. Um, you know, I think it's very hard while we do know a lot about these investigations and the reporting on it has been, you know, very, you know, we have a, you know, sort of up to the, the minute sort of idea of where this is headed, especially with the reporting coming about the fact that the prosecutors are giving Trump the opportunity to come in next week to testify. Uh, you know, 
there are other major factors here behind the scenes that are driving it that we probably won't know about, you know, for a few years to understand why Alvin Bragg did what he did. Um, it, it is interesting to me that, you know, Alvin Bragg is an elected official. Mm-hmm. He is someone that was put there by the, the, the people in Manhattan. And it has to be in, in the front or back of his mind, the fact that it is known that he had this investigation, that a chief prosecutor on that case thought that there was probably enough to make that case and that for some reason it had stalled out. And it's one of the public facing larger aspects of this investigation that we just can't look past. And that's that that Donald Trump is the most public person probably in this country. People have a range of opinions about him. And if you decide to charge him, um, there's a there's a public facing aspect to all of your decisions that are unlike any other probably criminal investigation in American history. Besides, as you pointed out at the top of the show, the decisions that were made around Nixon. Uh, And we'll put a pin in that for a second. When you talk about Alvin Bragg bringing these charges, it's not just, you know, this is not an open and shut case by any means. And you alluded to this, Rebecca, the sort of the challenge is going to be a conviction here, setting aside all the politics. Right. In New York, it can be a crime to falsify business records. That would be mischaracterizing uh, the payments to Stormy Daniels. But it amounts to a misdemeanor to elevate it to a felony. The prosecutors would need to show that Mr. Trump's intent to defraud included an intent to commit or conceal a crime. In this case, we would expect that second crime to be campaign finance violations, right? That is the most obvious one. And it is a little bit difficult to prove. I mean, first of all, it is not, you know, it is untested in courts. But second of all, you have to show that the reason why they disguised these payments to Michael Cohen as legal fees when they were, in fact, these payments was to cover up the fact that they were a donation to the campaign. And he's going to claim, no, I, you know, one of the key defenses here is going to be, you know, I I love Melania. I wanted to protect her. This was, you know, this would have been a public embarrassment. It had nothing to do with my campaign. And that makes it quite difficult because, again, you know, the prosecution has a burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And, you know, does that create doubt? I just wonder, I mean, Trump has said his um, his defense thus far, at least from his lawyers, as they've been sort of um, speaking on background, if you will, is is well, the, the, the line that has been floated is Trump was extorted. Why is he being charged with the crime? Does that hold any water? Well, that's another defense. I mean, you know, to me, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And it's, you know, it it isn't consistent with a lot of facts that we know. And, you know, but would a juror, one juror believe that? I mean, that's a, you know, that's a really big question. And if you are prosecuting the president and it ends in a hung jury or an acquittal, that is a huge embarrassment to the office and to the criminal justice system in general and plays right into the hand of his playbook, which is about undermining and delegitimizing our criminal justice system. So, I would think that the um, district attorney has thought of that, of course, and has made sure that going forward, he is pretty sure that he can prove this case. Do you think that they would bring Michael Cohen in for the the fact that he went in for 20 meetings? 
Does that signal anything about the breadth of charges? Could that be multiple charges? I mean, I know I'm asking everybody to read tea leaves here that are scant, but did that surprise you, the number of meetings that Michael Cohen has had with prosecutors in I the mean, DA's office? It, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't. On, on a certain level, you have a problematic witness like that. I mean, you know, when you think about it, prosecutors' witnesses are always problematic. I mean, we, you know, we used to say, like, nuns don't witness crimes. So, you know, you... Some of them do, but <laughs> right, anyway. Okay, most of the time. So, you know, you have to deal with, with witnesses like this but this is a high-profile case and, uh, you know, complicated set of facts and a legal theory that's somewhat, um, you know, novel. And so you want to make sure that you've got testimony that, that that is credible. And by credible, you must also make sure that you have corroborated enough of it that it's believable to the jury. Michael, I just wonder, you know, if this is the first indictment against a former president, a history-making move on the part of the district attorney, Alvin Bragg, it is almost certain that there are other indictments to follow, at least one. Uh, the signs very much point to Fonnie Willis coming forward with a criminal indictment down in the Fulton County probe. We don't know what the special counsel is going to do. Those could be more indictments. What is your expectation about the ways in which Trump can respond to this and whether or not some people in his party may use this as a moment to rally around the Trump flag instead of, you know, distancing themselves from the former president? Well, Trump, uh, probably more so than than anyone certainly that I've seen in my career, has been able to take investigations and weaponize them in ways to benefit himself and rally support. In, look, even even on something that 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 at the time wasn't an investigation, the election, he was able to rally his supporters to do something extraordinary on January 6th that was was unlike anything we had seen in American history. So I think you have to think that if Trump's back is up against the wall, that any anything is possible. He has he has shown. I think there's a is part of the larger public facing part of this investigation. I think that what Alvin Bragg will 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 have an obstacle and will have to show is that he's taking a decision that has never been taken against a former president. And even in New York, where he's likely to face a jury pool that is not going to look favorably upon Donald Trump, I still think he'll have to show to that jury and even to the public that there is good reason for taking this decision mm -hmm. and that this is a this is a major that look that there was a major crime that happened here. This was not a footfall. This was not this was not ticky tack. This was a major thing. And because of that, I am taking this this major decision that has never been taken before to charge a former president. And even in New York, where I there are not a lot of Donald Trump fans. I still think the jury will sort of look at this and say, like, OK, like, was is, is this really something that 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 a case that would have been brought if it wasn't Donald Trump would have been brought against a run of the mill politician? And and is there good reason there to take that? I understand the major tenant in the United States, the idea that we're all treated equally under the law. And I think prosecutors aim for that and the public expects that. But when it comes to a former president of the United States, I think that that a jury is going to look and say, OK, is, is this really something that that was worth doing because the implications of it could can can really reverberate around the country. This is not just a regular person that they would be charging. Indeed, it is not. There is the court 
and the Court of Public Opinion. Michael Schmidt and Rebecca Royfe, thank you both for joining me tonight. And while we all await the Manhattan DA's next move, my colleague, the Reverend Al Sharpton, will be talking to the man himself. Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg will be his guest on Politics Nation tomorrow at 5 p.m. Eastern, right here on MSNBC. But we have a lot more to cover on this program tonight, like new reporting about one of the sources of the big lie that should never have seen the light of day, but managed to make it onto a major cable news network. Plus, Florida Governor Florida Governor Ron DeSantis took his war on woke to the state of Iowa today. What that could mean is next. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Okay, here it is, finally, in black and white, from the good folks over at the Washington Post. Quote, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has indicated privately that he intends to run for president, according to two people familiar with his comments. According to the Post, Ron DeSantis is planning on running for president. That is a legitimate scoop for the Washington Post, but it is not exactly surprising. While Governor DeSantis still hasn't declared he is a Republican presidential candidate, he is doing pretty much everything you might expect a Republican presidential candidate to do. Just today, the Florida governor gave a speech in the early caucus state of Iowa, where he focused on his number one policy issue, calling all the stuff he doesn't like woke. We will never, ever surrender to the woke mob. We will fight the woke in the legislature. We will fight the woke in education. We will fight the woke in the businesses. These companies, woke companies, they're indulging in woke activism. We don't subcontract out leadership to a woke company based in California. Woke ideology has infected so many institutions. I think it's all because of the woke mind virus. We're even going to provide protections against woke banking. Our state is where woke goes to That is the sort of thing we have come to expect from Governor DeSantis these days, a noun, a verb, and the woke mob is coming for your children. What was less expected today was this veiled shot DeSantis took at former President Donald Trump. The one thing I could say, if you talk to Floridians, uh, there's no drama in our administration. There's no palace intrigue. They basically just sit back and say, okay, what's the governor going to do next? And we roll out and we execute and we do, do things and we get things done. And in the process, we beat the left day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. 
That is Ron DeSantis' sales pitch to Republican primary voters in a nutshell. The guy who won't make you worry about whether your president is about to fire his entire cabinet or try to buy Greenland. The problem for Governor DeSantis is no matter how much he may want to, he cannot escape Donald Trump's drama vortex. Today, the former president lashed out at his would-be rival with a special message from or for Iowa's rural farm community. Here it is. No other president was as pro-farmer as me. Tell that to Ron DeSanctimonious when he shows up to your door hat in hand. Tell him to go home. But as the Trump and DeSantis rivalry heats up, so do the former president's legal woes. Tonight, just before we got on the air, The Washington Post's Ashley Parker published this new report detailing how Republicans have grown uneasy about the threat posed by Trump's legal drama and are searching for an alternative. Kevin Madden, a former senior advisor to Mitt Romney's campaign, tells The Post... The theory that Trump defined and validated throughout his political career has been the Fifth Avenue Republican theory, which is that he could do anything. He could shoot anybody on Fifth Avenue and they would stick with him. That is going to be put to the test. But so far, it has proven to be an enduring principle. Joining us now is the reporter herself, Ashley Parker, senior national political correspondent for The Washington Post. Ashley, thank you for joining me this Friday evening, fresh off of your filing. Um, I would love to get your thoughts talking as you have been in recent days with Republicans in the party about how the GOP and someone like Ron DeSantis might calibrate a response to any potential Trump indictment, because on some level, it is bound to fire up the base. So what do you do with that if you're trying to provide an alternative to Trump, but also not alienate your most hardcore supporters? Well, that's exactly right. And from some of these Republicans, you hear a theory of the case or advice for someone like Ron DeSantis that is seemingly contradictory. It's something like a potential indictment uh, would make a certain section of the Republican base and Trump loyalists more likely to support him because they would then feel uh, because he has couched it this way that an attack on him or an indictment of him is an attack on them, the Trump supporter. Um, so you can't certainly can't seem to be seen as uh, gleefully in, indulging in something like that, you know, from your uh, 2024 Republican rival. Um, but at the same time, they also say that if you want to beat former Donald uh, President Donald Trump in a Republican primary, you are going to have to go directly at him and take him on and take the mantle from him. It can't be like 2016, where it's a crowded field, which as of now, it could still shape up to be, and where everyone sort of thought Trump would self-destruct. Media scrutiny would do Trump in. Uh, Legal scrutiny would do Trump in. Someone else would take Trump on. No one did. uh, And he became the nominee. And so, again, someone like DeSantis can't go after him for these legal investigations necessarily, but he is going to have to do at some point more than what you outlined at the beginning of this segment, which are these veiled threats. What Republican voters like about Trump is that he's a fighter. And at some point, DeSantis or another Republican hopeful is going to have to fight Trump for that primary nomination. Yeah, it really feels it sounds like there needs to be some kind of blood sport. I mean, and and by the way, to your point, mm-hmm. Ashley, Trump is framing this as a sort of it needs to be a vanquishing fight if it if it comes to that. I want to play some sound from him at CPAC where it's just in no uncertain terms Trump is positioning himself as a warrior. Let's listen to him. In 2016 I declared I am your voice. Today, I add, 
I am your warrior. I am your justice. And for those who have been wronged and betrayed, I am your retribution. I am your retribution. I am your warrior. I am your justice. I am your voice. I am your retribution. I mean, it seems like Ron DeSantis is going to have to put on his gloves if he's going to take down Donald Trump. And I guess the question is, Ashley, the Trump campaign has been trying to frame Ron DeSantis as an establishment Republican who spent his time in Congress trying to defund or trying to gut Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, and he's not really a fighter. Does the DeSantis team know what they need to do here? Is there is there any inclination to get in the ring? Well, so far, again, uh, what DeSantis has done um, is sort of say, for lack of a better term, scoreboard, right? He hasn't taken on Trump directly, but he has sort of very clearly said, look, I did what Trump, with again, without naming Trump, what he could not do. I won. Look at my margin in Florida. Look at some of those counties in Florida, like Miami-Dade, um, that I won and by how much, where Hillary Clinton beat Donald Trump in 2016. I am a winner. And so, again, he has so far shown an unwillingness to directly, you know, as you put it, put on his gloves and take Trump on as a fighter. But what a lot of these Republican experts, including a number who have uh, done focus groups and research and polling among some of these Republican primary voters that someone like DeSantis would need to get, is that you can sort of, they think, the most effective messaging this time in 2024 uh, for a Republican against Trump in a Republican primary is to sort of come at him a little bit from from disappointment. So say, look, he was a good president. He did a lot of good things. He had a lot of good ideas, but he didn't make complete all of his promises. He said he was going to build a war at the southern uh, a wall at the southern border, and he didn't. He said Mexico was going to pay for it, and it didn't. He said he was going to win in 2020, and he didn't. And and so sort of make the argument that he was good. I like him. His time has passed. It's time to move on to someone who is similar to him policy-wise, but without all of that baggage and chaos and controversy that these voters found, even Trump supporters found, so fatiguing and exhausting by the end. Uh, that sounds like an insanely um, difficult needle to thread. <laughs> I am. Well, there's so many reasons I'm not running for the Republican nomination. We will watch on the sidelines. Ashley Parker, thank you for the great reporting. Thanks for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. We have still more to get to this evening, including what exactly has been happening in Congress with Republicans running the tables. Plus, when Trump lawyer Sidney Powell went on Fox News to accuse a voting machine company of stealing the 2020 election, it sounded bonkers. But new reporting today reveals just how bonkers it actually was. That is next. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie. And we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Quote, the wind tells me I'm a ghost. One of the major revelations that has come out of the billion-dollar defamation lawsuit between the Dominion voting systems and Fox News is that the basis for some of Trump lawyer Sidney Powell's election fraud claims was one email from a woman who believed she talked to, quote, the wind. Politics reporter Will Summer of the Daily Beast tracked down that woman who sent the wind email and got an interview. And as this woman puts it, yeah, I'm crazy, crazy like a fox. This woman, whose email was used by Trump's legal team as if it was hard evidence, told the Daily Beast she is an artist who makes, quote, what she calls cactus art using glitter and crystals, which, by the way, sounds amazing. Where can I get some? She said she got her ideas about election fraud from, quote, hidden messages she detects in film and song lyrics she hears on the radio, and that she has an elaborate theory that the CIA controls the Washington Post the FBI runs the New York Times, and the State Department runs Politico and CNN. Again, all of this conjured out of the wind, or perhaps more formally, thin air. And look, I do not mean to cast aspersions on this woman. She has the exact vibe of someone I want to buy cactus art from. Seriously, please send me a link. I will buy that cactus art. But what makes this woman's email important is not that she clearly had no real sources, It's that the president's lawyer and Fox News could see that, and they ran with these allegations anyway. On November 7th at 6 p.m., Sidney Powell forwarded this wind woman's email to Fox News host Maria Bartiromo. The very next day, Bartiromo had Sidney Powell on her show to talk about it. And the claims Sidney Powell made that day were huge. There has been a massive and coordinated effort to steal this election from we, the people of the United States of America, to delegitimize and destroy votes for Donald Trump, to manufacture votes for Joe Biden. But it wasn't just Sidney Powell putting allegations from that wind email out. Check this out. This is the actual wind email talking about Dominion voting systems. Quote, Don't you find it curious that Nancy Pelosi's longtime chief of staff is a key executive there and that Richard Blum, Senator Feinstein's husband, is a significant shareholder in that company? I want you to focus on these three key phrases from that email. Pelosi's longtime chief of staff, key executive, and the idea that Senator Feinstein's husband is a, quote, significant shareholder of Dominion stock. Now watch Maria Bartiromo on her show on Fox News the day after getting that email. I also see reports that Nancy Pelosi's longtime chief of staff is a key executive at that company, Richard Blum, Senator Feinstein's husband, significant shareholder of the company. What can you tell us about the interest on the other side of this Dominion software? Everything Maria Bartiromo just said is wrong. Nancy Pelosi's former chief of staff was not a key executive at Dominion. Senator Dianne Feinstein's husband has no financial connection to Dominion. 
A lawyer for Dominion said their discovery process didn't turn up any documents used by any member of Maria Bartiromo's staff that mentioned Dominion before this segment, other than this wind email. In Bartiromo's own deposition, she was unable to point to any other source for Sidney Powell's ideas. Now, Fox has called Dominion's lawsuit against them an effort to silence the press. But repeating unverified claims verbatim is not journalism. It is crazy. Crazy like a fox. We have still more to come tonight. Up next, House Republicans are defending their slow and rough start on all those investigations they plan to pursue. Stay with us. Republicans have been quite busy taking full advantage of their investigative power in the House in the short time since winning the majority. Just this week, the Oversight Committee held seven hearings on topics ranging from the origins of COVID-19 to the migrant crisis at the Mexico border. And I'm not exactly sure what they expect to discover here. The Strategic Petroleum Reserve. That committee also sent a letter to the D.C. mayor on Thursday announcing an investigation into whether January 6 defendants have been mistreated in D.C. jail. Meanwhile, when House Democrats on the Oversight Committee this week asked Republicans to join them in denouncing white nationalism and white supremacy in all its forms, including the Great Replacement Conspiracy Theory, all 20 Democrats signed the letter and all 26 Republicans refused, which is wow. And today, one day after President Joe Biden unveiled his 2024 budget plan, members of the Freedom Caucus announced that they will only agree to a budget that slashes $131 billion from current spending levels. And those cuts cannot include defense spending or entitlement programs and no tax increases, which is some real tough math. Instead, the Frequent Freedom Caucus is eyeing cuts to student debt relief and COVID and climate change funding and adding work requirements to Medicaid. This all comes as the House Weaponization Committee has hit a rough patch. This week, we learned from The Washington Post that Congressman Jim Jordan is facing criticism from the right over his lackluster performance thus far. The Post reports, quote, critics say the committee has been too slow to staff up, insufficiently aggressive in issuing subpoenas for interviews and testimony and lacking in substance. Jordan defended his committee's work to the Post and pointed to the number of subpoenas it has issued. But his colleague on the Judiciary Committee, Congressman Eric Swalwell, had some choice words about Congressman Jordan asking anyone to comply with a subpoena. So we're going to haul witnesses in here today uh, and claim that they did not comply with subpoenas or requests. And that request is so rich because it's coming from a chairman who himself did not comply with the January 6th committee's request. So May 31, you see a letter sent to then-Representative Jordan asking that he honor his subpoena. He was asked over and over and over, you were a witness to a crime. You were a witness to the greatest crime ever committed with the most criminals ever indicted in America. Will you help your country? Will you comply with that subpoena? No compliance, crickets, absolute defiance of the subpoena. Joining us now is Democratic Congressman Eric Swalwell of California. He is, of course, a member of the House Judiciary Committee. Congressman Swalwell, thank you for being here and thank you for using the the term crickets in an actual um, House (laughs) testimony. Uh, I, I do have to ask you, and this is not a rhetorical question, do you think that Jim Jordan understands the hypocrisy here to issue these subpoenas when he himself did not comply with the subpoena and be outraged about the lack of people showing up for his subpoenas? 
Uh, not at all. It, it is completely uh, lost on him, uh, Alex. And, and in fact, uh, the Department of Justice showed up and they were willing to do what he was not willing to do. And they raised their right hand, gave testimony, cooperated. It wasn't so hard. And uh, he, uh, though, still remains out of compliance and not willing to honor his oath and give testimony about a crime that he witnessed. It's as if it's as if it's like they don't it, it, it's honestly like a, a party wide case of amnesia about what has been happening and their own behavior in Congress over the last several years. I, I would ask you, as they as part parts of the party want to relitigate January 6th, when Marjorie Taylor Greene and Jim Comer are going to D.C. J- jail and talking about the January 6th plaintiffs somehow getting a raw deal and otherwise looking to investigate the investigators on the January Sixth committee. How do Democrats see this attempt to relitigate a dark, dark day in our nation's history? I mean, I, I understand that the truth is important, but it also seems like politically very problematic for the GOP to keep bringing up January 6th. Is it a gift to Democrats in a way? <laughs> it's entirely for one person, uh, right? Uh, they recognize and believe that Donald Trump is the leader of their party, will likely be uh, the candidate. Uh, for president. And they were walloped in the midterms because voters chose competency over chaos. And and so they have to rewrite January 6th. Otherwise, uh, the voters will keep rejecting them. Now, they don't realize that the voters are never going to buy this. But by going into the majority, Alex, they have formed the largest law firm in Washington, D.C., and, and they have one client, and that's uh, Donald Trump. Uh, but it's it's not going to work. Uh, I promise you it'll continue to be uh, rejected. Uh, and as Donald Trump, you know, becomes closer and closer uh, to being their nominee, uh, they will have to, again, bring themselves closer and closer to supporting Donald Trump. And so it's no pathway to victory uh, for them. And the best thing we can do is to just remind voters what we delivered on health care on gun safety, on infrastructure, on climate when we're in the majority and contrast that with the chaos we're seeing now. And that's the case for putting us back into the majority next November. I mean, and I, I agree that this is for the audience of one Trump, but it does strike me that some of these Republicans like Jim Jordan and Marjorie Taylor Greene may legitimately believe that it was an inside job on January 6th, that they really are trying to get the bot to the bottom of something. And I just wonder, do you have any sense that there are any conversations happening within the Republican conference to disabuse them of these notions? Uh, No. And the reason is, is because, you know, the majority is so thin that Kevin McCarthy may be the speaker in title, but Marjorie Taylor Greene has the job. She's doing the job and he can't uh, do anything outside of what she wants to do. It's part of a corrupt bargain that he struck to be speaker. He's on a reoccurring payment plan uh, where he has to continue to deliver for Marjorie Taylor Greene and others. So he put her, who rooted for the rioters on January 6th, on the Homeland Security Committee. We're harboring a wanted international criminal in George Santos because you can't lose that vote. We gave he gave the 40,000 hours of sensitive security footage to Tucker Carlson because, again, that was a part of the promise. And so these payments will continue and, and they'll never have an honest conversation with themselves about what American people really want or need, because this is just about Kevin McCarthy staying in power and being a vessel state uh, as a conference to the MAGA nation.
I guess I wonder, I mean, it would be one thing if it was just all about Republican infighting and Kevin McCarthy and his speakership dramas, and we, we could leave it at that. But the fact of the matter is, Congress does have to do some things. And I, I think most urgently about the debt ceiling. Um, and the list of demands yep. coming from the Freedom Caucus is, and this is a technical term, bonkers. $138 billion, I believe. No cuts to Medicaid and Social Security, thanks to Joe Biden's political maneuvering around the State of the Union. They basically have taken those off the table. No cuts to defense spending. No tax yeah. increases. What you're left with is a set of insane cuts to programs that are politically untouchable, or not untouchable, but that you can't actually make. And Kevin McCarthy somehow has to navigate yeah. this, Alex, or the uh, country is going to default. So what happens? If they weren't serious before, I hope they're serious now, because today the 19th largest bank in the United States just collapsed and hundreds of thousands of people are not getting a paycheck. So it's time to get serious. And that means paying America's bills and not screwing around with the debt ceiling to achieve something politically that you couldn't otherwise achieve. It means keeping the government open in the fall and, again, not using a government shutdown to get something you couldn't otherwise get. And and globally, it means keeping Ukraine in the fight because their fight is our fight and we know it will come to us if they fall. And so those are the three things that they have to do. They can let the crazy out of the pot uh, in every other way. That's meaningless. Uh, but if they don't do those three things, there are real consequences. They can study the Strategic Petroleum Reserve for as long as they want, as, lo as long as they can actually do the business of covering. Congressman Eric Swalwell, it's always good to That's see right. you. Thanks for joining me on this Friday night. My pleasure. Thanks. We'll be right back. That's our show for tonight. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.